0: Oh, good morning again, dear family. Uh, one quick housekeeping thing: uh, all of the communion bread is gluten-free, so uh, you won't break out in a hive if you're uh, allergic or whatever it might be. So, uh, just, just uh, yeah, just come forward if you uh, if you like more gluten in your bread. I'm sorry, uh, we we don't have that today. It's little uh, chewy wafers or whatever they're made of. I, I'm not quite sure. Not not trying to hate on the gluten free bread. I'm I'm glad you guys get to take with us. <laughs> so today, sorry, one moment here. Uh, today we're going to be jumping into the last section of the Book of Galatians, uh, which is sort of the, the hands on section or the practical section. Uh, there's this is a, a frequent sort of uh, dividing line in a lot of the epistles particularly Paul's epistles, they call it the indicative imperative. So first Paul indicates or he says, all these things are reality. Now, because of this reality, do this. Or because of this reality, this is what your life ought to look like. Or because of this reality, this is definitely how your life should not look like. Um, The passages that we have to touch on today, it's a transition point of sorts, it's Paul's sort of pastoral heat at its highest. We, we see a point where Paul says some things that, that we're going to talk about that are, that are frankly beyond what most of us would say in any sort of pastoral or uh, counseling or church situation. But they're wonderful words, and they're words for us today for how we are to live our lives. So we're going to be starting chapter 5. If you guys want to turn there with me, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be going verses 1 through 12. But a couple things real quick. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 reads, So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And 1 Peter 2, 10 reads, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now I read these two passages uh, together. What's the connection between these two? The connection is that every people, every grouping of people holds these three virtues in common, faith, hope, and love, okay? Faith, faith, these things that designate our hearts in a particular direction, call our actions, call our allegiances, our behaviors in a certain way toward a certain good, toward a certain goal. And every community, every people has a hope. A thing that's this vision of the greater good, of the greatest good. This thing that we all look to, the vision of flourishing, the vision of what life at its best actually looks like. And all these things are intended to direct us to the third thing, to love. The ways that we interact with each other, the ways that we behave, the ways that we interact with people that we like, and the ways that we interact with people that we don't. The difference is, What are we supposed to believe in? Where is our faith supposed to be directed? Where is our faith supposed to come from? Where is our hope directed? And what does our love ultimately align us with? What does our love ultimately draw us to? That's the question. Every people, every political movement, every civilization that has ever existed has these three elements to it, faith, hope, and love. The question is, what is the overarching narrative, what is the overarching source that we draw from to understand what we believe, what our allegiance is given to, what our ultimate hope is, and then how do we act in love in kind? And like I said, Paul's been showing us the great story, right? The story that unites the church. The story of justification by faith. The story of Abraham that results not just in the Jewish people, but in the bringing together of non-Jewish, the Gentiles, and the Jew together to be one people under the lordship of the one true God, King, Jesus Christ. This is the story. This is the narrative. This is the thing that draws together the church. So now that Paul has laid that out, now that Paul has discussed these things, he brings us to the particulars of what it looks like. And that's going to be what we talk through for the next three weeks. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, just one verse. We're going to just read a few verses at a time. So starting here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We are so much weaker than we think. We're not near as strong as we think we are. As capable, as smart, as bold, as meek as good as we think. We are a broken people, made whole only in Christ. And as such, Lord Jesus, spend your spirit to enlighten us and to enliven us, to embolden us, to be a people who walk in accordance with the greatness, not just of what you said you've done, but what you've done the testimony in space and time of the Son of God breaking through our sin and shame and the wiles of the devil and death, rising victorious on the other side and now reigning at the right hand of the Father. Direct our hearts to you in this time and cause our hearts to be stirred by your word as we read together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to cover these texts under three headings. Uh, The Christian's freedom, verse 1. Verses 2 through 6, the Christian's hope and faith working through love. And then the third heading, verses 7 through 12, no false hopes. So again, the Christian's freedom, the Christian's hope and faith working through love, and no false hopes. So we begin here in verse 1. To be a Christian is to be freed. But hear me, not just free... But freed, okay? Paul's emphasis here is on the work of God, the liberator. Not on the freedom which is being enjoyed by the Christians. He gets into that later. But for here, for right now, his attention is given to the work of God. The one who liberates. The one who actually frees. The only one who's actually capable of freeing. So why make that distinction though? Why say, well, it's not just, it's not just being freed... And I think the reason is because for us in the West, I think for any human, really, the tendency is to think of freedom as just the ability to do whatever we want to. We denote freedom, we equate freedom with the ability to act as I want to act. But as fallen human beings, as people who are broken, as people who are yet under, to some degree, the dominion of darkness, there's nothing inherently good about being able to do whatever We want to do. No. We're freed first from our distorted loves, from those things that we want to do, from the areas in our heart, the dark crevices in our hearts that don't do what we ought to do, that don't want to do what we ought to do. We need to be freed from that before any of our freedoms mean anything good or anything right, before our freedoms and our actions lead toward any kind of flourishing. Or any type of good. Because again, the word denotes if you're freed, then it necessarily means that you were once enslaved. And Paul has been talking about that, but the question is again, enslaved to what? And I would argue from the text that Eleni read today and from other texts in the New Testament, that the New Testament's witness is that we're in enslavement to distorted wicked corrupted loves we love what we ought not to love we hope for what we ought not to hope for our desires are isolated they don't think about the other they're not our default mode isn't to consider the other the ethos of every human being outside of christ is your life for mine i get what i want no matter what the expense might be to another Whether it's family, my neighbor, or whole different people groups. But it's not just that. Freedom, Christian freedom in particular, isn't a freedom from something. It's also inevitably a freedom towards something else. And this is really where it gets exciting. This is where Christian freedom really comes to the fore. Uh, I'm not going to talk in detail about this verse because James is going to discuss it next week. But verse 13, immediately after the section that we're going to be reading today, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Serve one another. Hmm, hold on. I'm freed such that I serve. That doesn't make any sense. How is it that I'm freed to something only to be be entrapped or enslaved to something else? Paul says, yes. It's the same word. The same word that you read in Rome, the same, the same word that you read in, uh, in chapter 4 when it talks about being under slavery, this word for, this word, do loss, it's the same word there. Submit yourselves. If you are a slave. Be a slave to one another. Now what does that mean though? It doesn't mean so that I I would become a servant of all and then it's just one person doing everything. No, it means that the entire church, that the entire culture of God's people is one of service, mutual service, mutual self-giving, mutual dying to self in order that the whole people might be edified, built up, and Christ's name might be exalted in our habits, in our rituals, in the ways that we love one another. This can't be missed, beloved. Uh, John Barclay, uh, he's a Bible scholar, uh, love his work on Galatians. Uh, He says that the works of God, that the social life of the church isn't an addition to belief. It's not a sequel to the status that is recognizable or realizable in other terms. No, these works are the expression of belief in Christ, the enactment of a life that otherwise can make no claim to be alive. You can't claim that something is alive if that thing is not capable of expressing livelihood. And this is what Paul understands as the relationship between what we'd say good works and faith, Good works aren't what produce faith. Good works might not be what produce favor with God. But if the good works aren't there, all it means is that you're not alive yet. You haven't been brought to life. And it's a challenging word, brothers and sisters. It's a tough word to hear. Because we don't always walk in alignment with this. And I think Paul would have us. I think that's where the seriousness of this letter comes in. Paul says if you're not showing the life of Christ together, there may be concern that the life is not there. And that's the thing that Paul dreads the most. We're going to go down. So that's, that's the Christian's freedom. We're going to go on to the second section now. This is verses 2 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read here. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Well, here we're given a bridge to what Paul had been talking about in Galatians 2 when we looked at that passage together. So the issue at hand apparently is that there's a group of teachers and they're encouraging the church to embrace circumcision uh, and Just a a quick clarifying thing, circumcision not in the sense of the act itself. Paul himself, he just said, uh, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. The the point isn't the act of circumcision. The point is that circumcision is front loaded with you are justified by this. Circumcision is you will be found to be right before God and you're brought into the people of God by this act and by these actions, this adherence to the law. It's not just the act of circumcision, Just just to clarify that. And I think it's obvious now why Paul's so agitated throughout this letter. He sees that these people, having been freed from the bondage of their previous way of life, are now moving towards a different form of enslavement. But this isn't the enslavement, this isn't servitude, this isn't the mutual service that Paul's going to encourage later on. No, this is an enslavement which is going to result not in the love of God. Not in love of neighbor, but in contention, in pride, in elitism. In a way that's very similar to what happened to Peter and the community that he was surrounded by. And this is so pronounced in this, that this, its really it's a horrific statement. You have fallen away from grace. If grace is truly grace, if our freedom was truly wrought through Christ and Him alone then the thought of our having to do anything to make ourselves right before God and to be welcome into his family is nothing less than being severed from our one and only true hope. Falling from grace is just New Testament code from being estranged from Christ. Because God's grace to us is shown most fully in him. And to be severed from Christ is to be removed, not just from the hope of not being condemned, but from that which is the believer's greatest irreplaceable good, the only good that lasts and that truly matters. And this estrangement, again, it doesn't happen in isolation. Our being cut off from Christ, our being departed from Christ, estranged from him, is enacted in the life of God's people. Nothing that you do, just to speak to this body and and to those watching, to those hearing, nothing you do happens in isolation. There's no sin There's no turning of your allegiances. There's no redirecting of your faith and of your hope. That's not going to affect people around you. That's not going to shift and reshape the relationships that are around you. Where are some examples of this? Well, Peter's exhibit A, right? An apostle breaking fellowship with other believers and leading others to do the same. And in our most honest moments, beloved, we see it in ourselves. We see it all the time. Um, pastorally, just thinking about it, uh, I think this, I think immediately it's applying most to, to our church life and our life together as a body, but where I've seen this happen so often, not just in this church, but in my relationships, more broadly speaking, is just husbands and wives, and I think Paul would apply the exact same principle, just thinking about passages like Ephesians 5. You no, know, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The, when a husband starts, it's usually the dude. And I, it, it happens with wives too, but it's usually the dude. When the husband starts to get this, again, it's the slightest thing. It, it's, it's just, it's a nuance. It's, Everything is still clothed in the language of Scripture. Everything is still clothed with language because he doesn't want to make everything too obvious. But his ultimate love, his first love, is departed. Something else is enthroned in his deepest affections. Something else, some other good, is in the place of where Christ was as his only hope. And when that shift happens... It's just like Trevor said last week. It's just like a ship, right? You don't, notice a, you don't notice the change in 100 feet. You don't notice the change in a mile. You might not really notice the change for 3 or 4 or 10 miles. But 100 miles down the road, you notice that you're something completely off here. And it takes massive amounts to try to recalibrate and renavigate back to where you were supposed to be. And just as a form of exhortation to, and we're going to be talking about a little bit about this at the men's gathering, but, but, but men hear me, your your ultimate hope doesn't lie in anything else outside of Christ. Your, your, Your deepest longing, your deepest commitments, despite what you see, despite what you might be tempted to do, belong to Christ and Him alone. And when that shifts, brothers, God help me, I don't want to be walking with your wife because... Something just changed. One day it just snapped. Something happened. I don't know what it was. Our allegiances, our ultimate allegiances, folly has a long fuse, Doug Wilson says, and he's absolutely right. The consequences of our actions, is not just the consequences of our actions, it's the consequences of what our loves ultimately are, where our hope is ultimately directed. It's kind of a side note, but exhibit B. Um, uh, Thankfully, though, Paul doesn't leave it there, just in the negative. Instead, he counters this alternative gospel that's being presented to the church with the true one by saying two things. One, by the Spirit, through faith, we are called to be a people of unshakable hope. And two, our life together is to be most closely identified by faith working through love. Well, the language of hope here first is the same as the the, what is used in Romans eight twenty five and Philippians three twenty. It's this it's this great word, uh, the word for uh, eagerly awaiting, apetahametha. It's this it's this wonderful word that just means eager anticipation, but it means more than eager anticipation. Uh, When we talk about hope for the most part, in the English language, it's usually, I hope we have hamburgers tomorrow again because that was awesome. I hope that the park's open soon. I hope that uh, they make it, I make it to my, my lunch appointment on time. It's not, it's, I hope, and I'm not sure what's gonna happen in the end. When the New Testament uses the word for hope, and particularly in these texts, when it's talking about hope, it's an assurance of things to come. It's something that's set before us As 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 Hebrews talks about it, as an anchor for the soul, it's something that we look ahead to and our soul anchors onto. It doesn't budge. We budge, but it doesn't budge. And as long as we maintain our claws in this thing, as long as our anchor is set on this hope, we are immovable. We might be dragged through mud and fire and rain and hail and glass, but we get where we were supposed to go because the hope is unshakable. It doesn't change. And that is the wonder of our hope. And when you look here and you look to the other text in Romans 8 and in Philippians 3, we see this incredible combination of things. The hope of righteousness here is a part of the whole package that awaits believers at the end of the age. Being found righteous in Christ, what we read about here in Galatians. We, will be raised with an imperishable body, which is what Philippians 3 talks about, the resurrection of the dead, the glorified body, and will forever rejoice in and with the new creation, which will be fully revealed at the second coming of Christ, which is what we read about in Romans 8. It's this unbelievable line of things. And Paul is saying, you would trade that, you would trade that, for circumcision, for belonging, for adhering to a law, for enslavement? What sort of craziness is this? You don't see what you're doing. You don't see what you're trying to cling to here. Come back to your first love. The Spirit's preserving power, beloved, is what will bring all of God's people to this state. Not anything done on our part. Our good works, our adherence to circumcision of the law, or anything else. Now, Paul's second point, uh, called the, the irrelevance of being circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, and the importance of faith working through love, leads us right to our third point, so we're, let's just jump into our third point. No false hopes. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and this one's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. (laughs) Uh, When Tim Keller preaches this, he he finishes that verse and he goes, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) And he's absolutely right. This is the word of the Lord. Um, There's a lot of rhetorical flair in this section. Uh, It's pretty obvious when you read it in English. Uh, But despite what looks like just just sheer and unabetted vitriol, there's a flow of thought, particularly in verses 7 through 10, uh, which are all connected through the word persuasion. It's hard to see in the English because it's really tough to translate to where you see the connections. But if we were to to paraphrase it, uh, you would say something like, Who is cut in front of you, uh, keeping with the analogy of running, who's cut in front of you and made you unpersuaded of the truth, torn your eyes from the truth, made it so that you don't obey the truth anymore? That's why it translates it to obey the truth. Uh, Sorry, I lost my place. This persuasion, this new identity, this new faith is not from the one who calls you, that being God. And skip to verse 10, I am persuaded, I'm, that We translated to, my translation means I have confidence, I am persuaded in the Lord that you will think no other way. As strange as it might sound in that, that last little bit there, it follows from everything that Paul has been saying, which is just that the Galatians are being tempted to turn from obedience to the truth toward an alternative truth. They're just being given a different alternative. Again, like we talked about at the beginning of this sermon, it's faith, hope, and love, and it's just redirected. That's all these teachers are trying to do to them. Now, what's puzzling is that Paul is persuaded that those in Galatia will not turn from the truth and that they're going to finish their course in obedience. That's weird. I, I, read, I read that, and I'm like, you know sound very persuasive <laughs> you you you're hot man you're just you're just you're angry you're you're frustrated you're exasperated you're kind of brash after everything he's been saying that's not the natural conclusion that I would come to but i think the key is to understand that paul's concern for the church is so deep and he understands that even the slightest veering is going to have cataclysmic consequences not just for the individuals who are teaching, but for the whole body, and that's where it gets the, the the little bit of yeast, right? It gets into the dough and it infects the entire thing. The small thing, again, just like the navigation, starts small, ends up big, somewhere completely different. And then there's verse twelve, which, on the face of it, it it, it just seems so crass, right? It just seems so unnecessary. I I, I think like. If I was with Chris Taylor and we were hanging out and we were evangelizing some guy and he had a Jewish background or something, and Chris was like, Man, I wish that those guys are talking about this, they would just emasculate themselves. I'd be like, I'd be mortified, I'd I'd blush, I'd have my head down, be like, Oh, what are you doing, dude? You can't talk like that. That's not cool. Um the uh my you know, that's what my translation says. Uh I actually love how uh, N.T. Wright, Anglican Bible scholar, uh his translation of the New Testament, uh in good English form, uh he says, if only those who are making trouble for you would cut the whole lot off. It's, <laughs> it's, it is intensely vivid language that Paul is using here. But despite the intensity, despite the vividness, I think we need to see behind what he's saying and understand that in you know, probably maybe the most counterintuitive way possible, this is Paul's pastoral heart on full display in this raw and sort of unmitigated level. Paul's heart here is to confront head-on the false hope of circumcision. That's all he's doing. As offensive and vulgar as this verse may come across to us today, I, I actually don't think it's possible for us to grasp how infuriating this would be to a Jew or a Judaizer in Paul's day. I, I was trying to think about it. I just don't think we have an equivalent to it in Western North American society. Just think about it. One of the most important things, one of the, like the top two or three, maybe the thing that sets you apart and defines you, you, your family, your family lineage as far back as you can recall, your culture, your race, your whole way of understanding your place and actions in the world, imagine that thing being taken and not just being told that it's, just, it's not as important, but that it literally has no value whatsoever. And this isn't the only place that Paul does this. He does it in Philippians 3. We read in Philippians 3, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and place no confidence in the flesh. Paul, a Jew of Jews, as he goes on to talk about in the rest of Philippians 3, takes one of the quintessential hallmarks of being a Jew. And he just kind of says, it's little more than a cut. It's a real bad cut. Um... I think that one of the more clear things. Uh, Paul got stoned for this kind of thing, right? <laughs> Paul, Paul, had rocks thrown at him in other in other occasions. He was whipped. He was beaten for saying this sort of stuff. Uh, it's incredible. There's the, the the depths of insult and offense here. Just don't touch us today, like it touched the Jews of Paul's day. Like it t- like it touched probably half the people that Paul talked to in Paul's day. And this, beloved, I think is why he mentions right before it the offense of the cross. It's what makes the cross so offensive. Because the cross puts all false hopes to death. It relativizes every other hope, every other faith, every other thing. Because only in the cross do we find the one hope that sustains and that actually truly matters. For Paul, he was confronting one of the boundary markers of what it meant to be a good Jew, and thus made right before God and made right before with, and made right with others. He was confronting and mocking an entire culture's definition of worth of what really matters. And this is exactly what the Galatians needed to hear, and it's what every generation needs to hear. What we need to have put before us continually, because our definitions of worth are ultimately going to define. Our worship. What we love, how we love, and who we love. At core, we're worshiping creatures intended to direct our affections and shape our words and actions toward that which is most worthy. And this, beloved, is what does us in. If I hold family to be the most worthy thing in my life, any and everything that gets in the way of what I believe to be my family's flourishing, is nothing more than an impediment. Whether it's people, movements, poverty, job opportunities, whatever. It's an impediment. It's something that should either be avoided or overcome, dominated. And the same goes for any other thing that we bank our hopes and identity on. That's why it doesn't just stay here in the text. That's why it's for us here today. Work, reputation, country, political affiliation, physical appearance, intellect, affinity group, social status, whatever else. In the end, if any of these things hold my ultimate allegiance, exclusion or dominance are the only appropriate response to anything that counters them. That's all I got in my tool belt. For those who were promoting circumcision and adherence to the law in the church. You see this. Exclusion was the natural outcome. It's just what had to happen. But if the message of the cross is true, if God's breaking into human history in the life, death, and resurrection of his Son is the one overarching hope for all humanity. The outcome is different precisely because it 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 because it annuls the natural responses of exclusion and dominance. It annuls them. The people who were formed by the wonder of the gospel. And again, were were shaped not just by the death of Christ, whereby our our pardon was purchased, whereby wrath was was atoned for, whereby our sin was removed, but the life of Christ that he now lives through his people, alive, today, flowing in our midst, flowing in our veins, by his Spirit, present, in power, to sanctify, to work in us, to work among us. If this gospel is true, True, then we are going to emulate our true Lord in ways that are just counterintuitive. They're almost implausible to a world that looks at all the differences that we hold and all the differences that we're going to have as a community. And we're commanded to respond in a different way. Romans 12:10. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a ludicrous command in a culture where honor and shame were preeminent themes. And the thought that you would vouch to honor, not just honor those who are honorable, but be in competition to show greater honor than you're being shown, is lunacy, stupidity, flagrant crazy talk in the Roman world. And in ancient Near East, for that matter. Many cultures in that time. Galatians 5:13 Through love serve one another. Ephesians 5:21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3:13 Bear with one another and forgive each other. The lifeblood of the community of the church is one of self-giving love. The lifeblood of the community of the church is one of dying to self so that others might live. The ethos of the Church of Christ is, and always has been, and always will be, my life for yours. It's the absolute reversal of everything that we know, everything that is in our flesh, everything that is a default for us, and every culture the world embraces. It's a complete, complete reversal. As we close, uh, did you hear the repeated words and the commands and the practices that I just described? One another. One another. As I said earlier, the social practices of the Christian community, they're not an add on to the gospel. They're the necessary result of a people made alive by the Father's sending of the Son and the power of the Spirit. That's where life gets complicated. That's where being a people isn't fun anymore. (laughs) Because being a people means I have to be with people. It means that I have to engage with other people. It means that I'm going to be with those who trigger my frustration. It means I'm going to be with those who trigger my anger. It means I'm going to be with those who unveil my own weakness, my own stupidity, my own vain hopes, my own vain loves. It's going to be this process of, in some sense, continually being put to death because the way, the life that I knew before is being put to death, the old way of life, the old man you been shown to me what a fool I was, how dumb the things that I held to were, how much and how frequently I run to my petty loves. And that's why, and it's a, it's a hard reminder, it's impossible for us to fulfill the commandments of Scripture by ourselves. You can't do it. Not just because you can't do it because you're, you're too weak. Yes, that's true. That's part of it. You can't do it alone because... Most of the commands in the New Testament are directed toward how you behave to other people, how you actually interact. And they're not things that play toward our strengths. The commands are those things that play toward our weaknesses so that God might be all in all, so that we would acknowledge the Spirit's grace and the Spirit's ineffable power at work to shape and conform a people to the likeness of our King. So please pray with me as we pray for us as a church, so we pray for other churches during this difficult time, but really in every time, in every time. These times of difficulty are chances to embrace this kind of a thing. It's already hard. Let's just make it harder. It's fine. Let's embrace each other more. Let's, what, what, what do we have to lose? It's great. Uh, we, we, we need to be engaged and we need to be with each other in a way that shows the world, that enacts before the watching world the goodness of our King, the self-giving love of our King. Let's pray.